If we could begin with prayer, please rise. This is the Apolitikion for St. Arsenios, the Cappadocian, whose memory we commemorate this day. You strive to live a life truly inspired by God. You became a holy vessel of the, of the Comforter, bearer of God, Arsenios. And you were given the grace to perform miracles, offering to everyone your quick help. Our Father, we plead you, pray to Jesus Christ our Lord, to grant us his great mercy. Amen. I read that this morning because we commemorate St. Arsenios. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, St. Arsenios, uh, he was born in 1840 in Cappadocia, the ancient Christian, uh, uh, really uh, bedrock of a place within the history of Christianity. Uh, This is where the Cappadocian fathers were from, St. Basil the Great, um, St. Gregory the Theologian. and this area remained Christian even though, the, even through the onslaught of the Turks uh, after the fall of Constantinople. Of course, all of Turkey became, well, it was the Ottoman Empire at the time, became predominantly Muslim. And yet there was still this small remnant of Christians in this ancient Christian land. And so in the town of Farasa, which is where um, St. Paisius was born in Asia Minor, uh, this, uh, uh, his local village priest, if you will, was Father Arsenios. And Father Arsenios was a man very much filled with the Holy Spirit, and he performed many miracles in the lives of those humble people, this small group of Christians. The miracles were so many that the uh, Muslim Turks would come to him for healing, and he would heal them as well. And there were times when there were um, Turkish uh, brigands, if you will, that would come in and try to invade these Christian towns and and take things away. And there were a number of times when, through the prayers of St. Arsenios, their little town of Farasa was uh, protected from these invaders. And uh, if you know your history, you know that in the 1920s there was the great exchange of populations between the Greeks and the Turks. And so all of the Christians, all of the Greeks in the lands that are now Turkey were forcibly exiled and and sent to Greece. And St. Arsenios at that time was in his 60s. And um, he traveled with his people, but he foretold his own passing away very soon after their arrival in Greece. And and he did repose in the Lord there. Uh, St. Arsenios was also the spiritual father of St. Paisios' family. And uh, when uh, St. Paisios was born, he was baptized. And he was baptized with St. Arsenios as his godfather and also as the priest performing the baptism. And at that baptism, he was given the name Arsenios. So St. Paisios, in his earthly life before he became a monk, he was known as Arsenios. So he traveled with his family and settled into Greece when he was very young and uh, continued the life that many of you know um, very well, which is the life of St. Paisios and his ascetical life on Mount Athos. He wrote the life of St. Arsenios. So if you have a chance, does our bookstore have the book, I'm sure? Yes? No? 
Maybe we'll have it. We'll get it soon. We've had it in the past, right? The life of St. Arsenios. So we'll, uh, we'll have that at some point in the near future. Um, and that is uh, published by the monastery in Suroti, outside of Thessaloniki, which is where the relics of St. Arsenios are to this day. Now also the relics of St. Paisios are there as well. But the church right next to St. Paisios's grave is a church dedicated to St. Arsenios. Uh, he was canonized by the patriarch in, I believe, 1986, sometime in the 80s and uh, is a saint of our church and a fervent intercessor who continues to work miracles by God's grace to this day. So the example that I wanted to give through that is that uh, that little tidbit I mentioned about the Muslim Turks seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in him and that because it was so overwhelming, even though they were Muslims, they thought the Christians were wrong, all of these things... Uh, His holiness pierced through all of that, such that some of them were even converted to the faith, such that even though they were Muslim, they came to him for healing rather than to some Muslim cleric or someone else. So this is an example to us as we live in a world where we are the minority and uh, that our holiness, our faith, and the beauty of the Orthodox Church can pierce through whatever other conceptions or whatever other hindrances people may have. So with that, I ask Dr. Timothy Petitsis to come forward and offer his enlightened words. Thank you. That's on. (coughs) Thank you very much, Father Matthew. And I thank all of you here at St. John's. Uh, Of course, as Father said, I'm Timothy Petitsis from the Holy Cross uh, Greek Orthodox School of Theology in in Boston, Massachusetts. You're all invited to visit us there. Um, Um... and I've, I've really loved St. Arsenius of Cappadocia for a long time, uh, incidentally, and I, I don't know exactly where that came from, but it's nice to be with you here on his, his um, feast day. Um, it's nice to see Father Matthew again. Of course, um, he was my student at the seminary, but um, he really stood out because of his lovely family and his mature dedication to the preparation for the Holy Priesthood. And uh, it's very nice to be with him again. And I would also like to take this moment to, to thank the, uh, the many retreat organizers who handled all the pressing details of a large event like this one, and in particular, um, Tomaida, for um, uh, running me here and there yesterday. Uh, my phone's on, on um, airplane mode, but I just want to make sure I know, uh, I'm aware of the time, so I don't deprive you of as many minutes as possible of my... Uh, 
And I thank all of you for joining us here today, and I pray that what is said here will be of some benefit for you um, in your life in Christ. I don't come here to lecture you, um, but rather to share things that have um, come up on my own journey in the life in Christ, and hopefully some of those will be of benefit for you. Especially now that you're preparing yourselves for the imminent um, fast of the Nativity. Because this is, of course, your Nativity retreat. And the blessed celebration of Christ's birth to follow on December 25th. Um, I want to make a note, actually, on Bethlehem and the Christmas spirit. Um, A year ago, I was with our students on our study abroad, which we call the St. Helens Pilgrimage, and I spent a a, a better part of a week in Bethlehem, especially at, um, I mean, our hotel was there. And from my... um, from my hotel window, I, I could look out up the hill. I could see the monastery where it covers the place where the shepherds were um, uh, when you know, the angels came. Behind us was Shepherd's Field um, as well. And there's such a special spirit in the city of Bethlehem to this day. It, it really always feels like Christmas Eve in, in Bethlehem. And I, I mentioned that, I've, I've actually given a talk about this once, but we have many times that memory of what Christmas was like at, when we were children, and sometimes as we get older we feel we've lost that. That really is, that spirit is there in Bethlehem all the time. It's a town that's forever characterized by what happened there. And, uh, you know, that is, that is an incredible blessing. Um, a further note, if I could, about the Nativity Fast. One of my classmates at seminary, um, this was, uh, you know, many years ago, and he was, uh, he seemed very old to me, because I think I was 25 and he was, you know, 38 or something. He seemed really ancient. <laughs> Uh, and, and certainly he knew everything. You know, he was very mature. Um, he would pull uh, all-nighters in late October and early November so that he could finish all his semester research papers. And I would say to him, you know, uh, John uh, Fatmir was his Albanian name. You know, why are you doing that? He says, because, you know, when the fast comes, I want to focus just on the fast. I don't want to finish the semester with the anxiety of exams and papers and not really have my attention to the miraculous feast. Well, I certainly have never been able to equal that uh, drive that he had. Um, He later moved back to Albania where he became the first uh, Orthodox Albanian bishop since the communists had uh, taken over and, you know, almost wiped out the church. But uh, I've always struck uh, by his example there. We really live in the age of the merchant. We live in a capitalist age, in a corporate age. Um, when did that start? Maybe uh, it's the Medici's or something in uh, the uh, northern Italian city-states of the Renaissance. Maybe it's the Protestant Reformation. 
my mentor, Jane Jacobs, thought that. It was actually the 1450s in London when several of the trading houses withdrew from trade to concentrate uh, solely on loaning money to other trading houses. She thought that was the birth of capitalism. But we live in this commercial age, this merchant age. And one result of that is that we tend to think of time as something that we can manage, um, as something that we never have enough of, and also we tend to think of time as something which is always compelling us to be more productive. What we don't do very well in a merchant age is differentiate time. All time is sort of the same. I mean, now that's why you have that feeling that through your your phone work is invading, you know, your sleep, it's invading your weekends, your vacations, your Sundays. We're losing the sense of certain times or seasons being sacred to God and important for us. And as a result, uh, this then affects us in the church. And even though uh, we're trying to live according to the church, really our sense of time is dictated socially, of course. And we don't anymore remember that the Holy Spirit is operating differently at different times and seasons. Certain seasons are set aside for greater spiritual struggle. Certain seasons are set aside for keeping your prayer rule a little more effectively. Certain seasons we try to set aside for spiritual reading, fasting, preparation. Uh, I heard a a metropolitan, I think I'm going to mention him later in the talk again, um, from Greece say once that uh, Lent, he said, this is now the spring Lent, he said Lent is the time when you've got to plant. Because what grows from Lent, he said, you will have to live on spiritually for the rest of the year. I thought that was an interesting... Um, you, you hear in some of the, the Russian writers' memories of uh, Russian families um, closing the piano for the duration of Lent. Or, um, or there was a time in, in Russia when the, the courts were closed for all of Lent, or the theaters. In any case, we think of time as all the same. But somehow in the church, the, the, the witness is, is different. That certain seasons are appropriate for certain things. Especially during the Nativity Fast, uh, thinking that it is a time for greater effort to fall in love with Christ and to purify our loves, to purify ourselves from those things which are either false beauties or which are fine enough in themselves, but they're somehow lower on the grand scale of beauty, lower on the the rank of what is beautiful. So in the seasons of the fasts, we're summoned to intensify our arrows for Christ. And we do this, as I said, through fasting. And we are summoned during the, the fasts to unfold this eros, 
this mad, self-forgetting love for the divine and unfold it into an agape or an empathy for our fellow man. Not to see it is something so different, our service to our fellow person, but the unfolding of that love for God. And this will be the topic of this morning's discussion under the name Chastity and Empathy. Or to put those terms differently, Faith and Works of Self-Sacrificial Love. Works of the law, that's out. But works of self-sacrificial love. Or in a a third uh, parallel, chaste and ardent eros for the beautiful, on the one hand, unfolding into a bold, yet also long-suffering agape for the good. Or, to put it in still one other way, the first of the two greatest commandments, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Maybe that's one reason we fast. We have less strength. So <laughs> even if our love of God stays the same, you know, closer to the, the all, the percentage is rising. And then, and then that to unfold into the second of the two greatest commandments, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is the right place to summarize a little bit last night's topic the primacy of beauty in our spiritual lives. Uh, I, I see it, uh, you know, first of all, you know, in my own field of ethics, that because it defines itself today, it defines itself as the rational investigation of morality, that it's sort of the true, some kind of logical schema or system. You kind of fashion uh, a, an intellectual approach which is sort of almost like a weapon, and you use it to hunt the good. But it never explicitly, ethics never explicitly anymore unfolds into an examination of the beautiful. So when we hear about a beauty first way, we don't know what to do with that. And as a culture, we have a similar problem. We know what science is. Um, And we know what technology is. Or perhaps we know what good policy is. We have, a, we have a way of talking about the true and the good, or the useful, the effective. Maybe even some discussion of the moral and politics. But our discussion of politics is not very beautiful, is it? <laughs> and in fact, uh, it's uh, the opposite. So, as a culture, we don't know what to do with the beautiful. We know about figuring things out and getting things done. Beauty seems uh, weak. Maybe it seems like a waste of money. Maybe it seems like uh, a sign that we're not really in touch with the suffering in the world. So this emphasis on beauty can seem strange to us in our culture, but but not all cultures were like this. Most of history was not like this. Most of human history was not like this. Still, within the church, even, we may not not have ever heard things described in the way that I'm describing them. 
it may seem like emphasis on beauty is not the gospel. But the emphasis on beauty first, as I call it, is simply saying that we need to let the first of the two greatest commandments indeed be the first of the commandments. We need to allow ourselves to fall in love with God with a love that includes all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And this kind of total love is what we call eros. A pure and sanctified eros is not only our duty, but it's a duty that God tries to make easy by being beautiful, by appearing to us as beautiful, an encounter with divine spiritual beauty. When we build a beautiful church or adorn a church beautifully, we're helping people to fulfill the first of the two greatest commandments. We are, we are announcing to them uh, the good news. Right? Ever since I was a child, and, you know, who, who knows if this is an accident of the English translations of the scripture I heard. I don't know if people who hear the scripture in Slavonic or uh, Greek or some other language, if it, but ever since I was a child, when I heard this encounter of people testing Christ and asking him, you know, which is the greatest commandment, I always took our Lord's answer in a very static way. I took it as an intellectual answer to an intellectual question. As if they were some philosophers and he was... Somehow it seemed to me they were saying, well, you know, if we were going to write a book about the law, where would we start? Or, if we were going to analyze the law as a philosophical system, what would be the foundations? And, and there's a hint of this in the Gospel is, is itself, but I always took our Savior's answer as being, you know, mostly clever. That he gave, he gave an answer that kind of refuted their, their tricks. They were testing him, and he, his, his answer was perfect and complete. But what I tended to miss was the plain meaning of the question. What are we, first and foremost, commanded to do? What are we commanded to do? That's, that's what the question, what is the greatest commandment? What are, we, what are we commanded to do, first of all? And Christ answers, you are commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You are commanded to love in such a way that could only be described as a falling in love. Last night I used this word eros, E-R-O-S, this eros. This, it's a, one of the many words in Greek for love. And the church fathers use this love as well for the, to describe this kind of total love for God. But just because I'm using a Greek word uh, that uh, Greek church fathers used and they knew Greek philosophy doesn't mean that I'm here to push on you a Greek philosophical system. Right, salvation is from the Jews. Right, this, is, this, is the, 
if, if, if Greek orthodoxy has a claim, and it, of course I think it does, uh, to, to the truth, its claim rests on the fact that it has remained so Semitic in its worldview, the way of the heart. Just the other components are supporting. I am here to know among you nothing but Christ and Him crucified, as St. Paul said. Eros is the word the Greek church fathers used, in other words, to describe what Christ Himself is commanding as our first order of business. So Christ is saying, that's the commandment, to love the Lord your God in this total way, all your strength. And someone's saying, oh, yes, the word for that would be eros. That's all. It's not, uh, it's not turning the gospel into a philosophy, let's say. Christ is commanding us, love God in this total way. This is the first order of business. Don't imagine that you are about to succeed in the other commandments, the other tasks, unless you have struggled to obey this first task. It's, there are kind of exceptions to that. Um, I, I wrote a, a letter, uh, an article for a, a Russian software magazine somehow, a friend of mine, it was in English. Uh, they wanted you know some ethics, and I, I, I was pointing out that um, uh, one of the reasons that you know, you know companies they like to, to talk about you know their devotion to the customer, and they like to talk about their um, um, you know customer surveys or focus groups of customers. What does the customer want? And I said, you know, one of the reasons why we want to get rich, if we do want to get rich, is so that we can buy, afford to buy those, those products that are designed and made by people who don't care about us. Right. If I if I wanted if I want to drive a let's say I don't know I, I don't but let's say I wanted to drive a BMW, it's because the engineers at BMW they don't care about the customer. They're they're in love with driving and the auto machine for its own sake. That they have a passion. With Steve Jobs running focus groups, he. Why would he ask the customers? He, was, he had a kind of earthly eros for his aim and purpose. He was completely in love with what he was trying to do. I'm not saying there's no room for love for the customers. I'm just trying to say that uh, in this little point, that this eros is the first order of business in many, even in business, let's say. I don't want to buy a product from a company that no one is passionate about making a good product, but they're always asking me how much I like it. I, I, don't, I don't want. I, I, I don't travel that much except to, to Greece because of the study abroad. But a couple of times I've been in France eating at restaurants. I can tell you one thing in France the waiter is not going to ask you how you like the food. <laughs> no. Right? You know. Michelangelo is not going to ask a six-year-old how he likes his art. And a French chef is not going to ask an American tourist how I like his art. 
There's, he loves that food and cares more about its taste than I do. And I'm the one eating it. And, and that's what makes it nice to eat in France. Yes. I, normally I just ask the waiter to pick everything. You know, the, 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 uh, the appetizer, the, the, cor- the main course, you know, the, the salad or whatever, the dessert, and the wines that will go with each thing. They, they pick it all. They, these people are artists. I'm not trying to impose myself on them. Um, so this is a, a kind of a, an example of what I mean, that it's nice to be in the presence of someone who has an eros for something. That they have a, a holy passion for that thing. Was you know Saint John of Kronstadt, you know, doing surveys, you know. Well, he, he was doing surveys in the sense that he was hearing everyone's confession. And that's a nice thing in the Russian tradition. Everyone's going to confession. Um, and and therefore you get to hear what everybody is thinking. But nevertheless, uh, the saints are in love with Christ for his own sake, and therefore we want to be near them. They're not trying to impress me. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some other examples like this. You know, that's yeah, that's what it means to say you've arrived. You can afford the stuff that they don't care about you. They just are doing it for its own sake. And we should have this quality in our spiritual life. You're not going to succeed, in other words, in the second commandment of pleasing the customer if you have neglected the first commandment of loving perfection which may be a rather distant icon of divine perfection in the case of, let's say, wine, but not that dis- distant. Um, Christ used wine, commanded us to use wine. Now, to get back to these two commandments, these two greatest commandments, I think it's also important to note that there is only one person in all of history whom we can love that will fulfill both of these commandments. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is, in loving Him, we are loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But He also took on flesh. He became a human being like us. He appears in the poor, the needy, like us. So, when Christ said, these are the two greatest commandments... He was quite clever. He was confessing openly his own identity as fully God and fully man to people who, had he just said it, could never have accepted it. He goes on to say that all the law and all the prophets hang upon these two commandments. In other words, all the biblical tradition, all the prophecies of the Messiah to come, were all pointing to him. Because he alone is fully God and fully man. And the, and the, the, the word he uses, kremas, that they hang, they hang on these two commandments. It hints at also the crucifixion. That in his crucifixion, he is worthy of our complete eros and our complete empathy. So the commandment to beauty first that I talked about last night is simply the command to really follow 
and devote ourselves to the hierarchy of ethical and moral values which our Savior himself commanded. He told us to love God in this erotic way, in this total, totalizing way. I want to read a, a quote from Dionysius that I referred to last night, and as I, Dionysius the Areopagite, and as I do, I want you to think about our Savior's first command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So St. Dionysius here is talking about beauty, and what he means is the beauty of God's appearing, of his overflow and self-offering to the world at the beginning of time, his self-revelation to the world. Somehow, this continues today. Somehow, creation is still falling in love with Christ. And he says, from this beauty comes the existence of everything. Each being, each existence, exhibiting its own way of beauty. For beauty is the cause of harmony, of sympathy, of community. Right? So the first commandment, to love the Lord our God with everything we are in this eros, causes this second step of harmony, sympathy, community, to love my neighbor as myself. He goes on, he says, Beauty unites all things, is the source of all things. Beauty is the great creating cause which bestirs the world and holds all things in existence. How? By the longing inside them to have beauty. We have formlessness. We come out of non-being and we long for beauty and form. And he goes on to say, and there it is, ahead of all. Because the church fathers had this notion that creation is still moving. Every created thing is still in a, a motion towards Christ. There it is ahead of all as goal, as the beloved, as the cause. How does God cause the world by being so its beautiful goal? And it says, okay, I'm coming. Creation says, no, no, non-being, forget it. I want to move towards you. It is the cause toward which all things move, since it is the longing for beauty which actually brings them into being. The longing for beauty brings them into being. All right. Pause, and we'll come back to that. But I remember a few years ago, someone saying, they were describing a particular island in Greece, the island of Kalimnos, where there have been quite a few saints recently, and I'd never even heard of the island. But they were d- describing it in such beautiful and holy terms that I, I felt in myself, I really want to go there. But I didn't express it that way. I said, oh, I'll never go there. <laughs> and within, within six months, uh, you know, just everything happened. A... a um, I was invited to go, who was someone, a, a priest monk who was going to make a pilgrimage. I found a very cheap ticket. I bought it. I went and checked my mail. 
there was there was a, a letter from my bishop. This is when I was in the PhD program and had zero money with a check. <laughs> okay, it was enough to cover the ticket. It was it was like that. But that trip to Kalimnos, as beautiful as it was and as miraculous it was as it was, it started with the beauty, that beautiful depiction of the place. I heard that desire came. That was the beginning of the existence. St. Dionysius goes on to say, beauty is a model to which they conform. Hence, the interrelationship of all things in accordance with each thing's capacity. Hence, the harmony and the love which are formed between all things, but which does not which do not obliterate identity. In other words, there's unity, but still there's distinction. Hence, the innate togetherness of everything, all from beauty. Hence, too, the intermingling of everything, the persistence of things. And I love this one, especially because of our science today, the final words of this passage, the unceasing emergence of things. So, I don't think I told this story last night, but it's, uh, it's a story that happened in the life of one of our contemporary elders, Elder Emilianos. And he, uh, I try to tell the story a lot. He was uh, a young person. He wanted to be a, a monk missionary. And he was given the advice, well, first you must actually be a monk. And he somehow chose a monastery and a diocese there in the center part of Greece. And he was tonsured a monk and ordained a priest. And then the bishop told him, I've changed my mind and you're never leaving. (laughs) And it was in a place where there was just no one and nothing. And Emilianos was a very intelligent young person and with a lot of creative capacity. And for him, that word of the bishop came down, not even like a death sentence. It came down like he was being buried alive. That's the end of all your hopes and dreams. You will stay here in this run-down monastery doing nothing with no one. Because all his hopes were elsewhere, thank you. But somehow he calmed himself and he accepted this word. And a few nights later he woke up in the middle of the night and he had this very mystical experience. He saw the entire universe, the entire world, bathed in a, in a, a holy light. He saw it with his physical eyes. It wasn't a dream. He walked outside the monastery. He saw it. And he also perceived that everything in creation, even rocks, were reciting the Jesus prayer. But every creative thing, plants, it's all... It exists, as Dionysius says, by virtue of its eros for the beautiful and its practice of the good, its empathy. And he, saw, he thought to himself, everything, in other words, everything in creation is reciting the Jesus prayer except we human beings. We're the only ones not. So that's, that's really, that kind of mystical vision is what St. Dionysius is describing about creation. But somehow the appearing of the beautiful drew non-being, it fell in love. 
So when we say, start by falling in love with Christ as your first order of business, we are saying, the first of the two greatest commandments is the first. It's the first. And it is a commandment. It's a duty. It's not just a feeling. And because it is a commandment given by the Son of God, who loved us so much that He accepted to die upon the cross for our salvation, it's possible to fulfill the command that He gives you. He will give you the strength. And moreover, because He loves us, fulfilling this command will pay you enormous dividends. So, so it is a command. Of course, to, just to skip here a little bit, how could any of us uh, even hope to fulfill it if we didn't have some encounter with spiritual beauty? How could we fulfill that first of the two greatest commandments if we didn't have some encounter with spiritual beauty either in music or in art or in architecture? someone builds a beautiful church or makes uh, something beautiful, they are saving your soul. Because they are giving you the chance to to know what it tastes like, to to start, set the wheels in motion of fulfilling what is a commandment in the end. And it's, it's hard in a sense to hear that. If we can just take a moment out of our day, let me check the clock here. If we can just take a moment out of our day from time to time and pray, O Christ, my sweetest Christ, grant me to love you more than I do now. Or fill my entire being with love for you. Help me to love you more. This is a request that will be answered. The beautiful is the appearing of God. It's a theophany. It's the victorious power of Christ's canonic love. So the church fathers, especially after St. Dionysius, had this idea that somehow creation fulfills the two greatest commandments, or tries to, it strives to, it's in agony because it can't complete its journey without us. We are the priests of creation. We're supposed to be gathering all of creation to fulfill its its destiny. So Dionysius is telling everything, first fulfilled the Eros commandment, and then filled the second commandment, under the propulsive power of the first. We are called to love Christ who conquered death for me, who gives himself totally to me, who is the summit of everything that I desire, who is the content of all my hopes and dreams, whether I realize it or not, all my best wishes and plans. And as this love becomes ardent and draws us closer to Christ, we remember the second phrase in St. Paul's preaching, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Within the beauty is where we are meant to discover the cross. And you know, you can see this among children who are raised in the church, who are just at the church and loving the church. Their childlike affection for God is so unbroken and pure that they, they many times, of course, you know, their children may have good days and bad days, we're not, but many times they already are contemplating lives of self-offering that would terrify an adult. 
I'm not saying they're all thinking about becoming, you know, monks and nuns. I'm saying that their lives are already chaste. Their lives are already open to holiness and beauty, certainly as much as we can offer. And their lives are already open in this second motion to sharing. They may not become monks or nuns, it's not. It's a rare calling. But they are already little monks and nuns, in a way. Living these their celibate lives. So within our mad joy of arrows for Christ, the self-forgetting, which is at the same time the ultimate fulfillment, we can easily contemplate living with empathy for others. And that's why the Church, purifying our arrows through fasting, asks us then, and it's practical too, take the money you saved on food and give alms. Alms giving this empathic act. It makes sense because we love not just Christ, but Him crucified. So in loving Him, we want to be like Him. We want to do what He did. Give our lives for others. We mentioned St. Porphyrios the New last night. That was the sequence he followed. That he had this love for Christ and it easily empowered his efforts to be good in in an empathetic way. We mentioned this Lars Tunberg, the expert on St. Maximus the Confessor, this ancient path of the spiritual life. And I mentioned too that monastic abbot in New York to whom I took my question about this scholarly passage, that same, fulfill the first commandment, the second one, let that, let that flow out of it. Now, all of that leads to the practical questions. How do we cultivate the proper relationship to beauty? How do we move through beauty into goodness? Well, let's talk about this eros, purifying this eros. The word we use is asceticism. I like to use the word chastity or describe it as chaste and ardent eros. Or I say that it's that eros is like what St. Paul meant by faith. First, we have to develop discernment. Excuse me. How are we to know when it is the action of God or something else is at work? All right. Even discernment within the thing. Yes, I, I have to say that sometimes contemplating uh, beautiful automobiles in person it has really propelled my prayer life. Someone tried to be perfect. Someone gave everything for this. And, and we can have other experiences like that. Um, yes, I ate a piece of cheese at Mount Athos once, and I thought, would it be a sin to stay here just for the cheese? It was so perfect. <laughs> I had a, I, I, it sounds like I travel a lot, I really don't, but I had a salad in Tuscany, Italy once. Yes, that was, uh, I, I was ready to, to, to leave this world. I mean, it was, uh, it, it was uh, so perfect. It was such a beautiful experience that I thought, the, the, the only thing more is God. I, I, I could have left the, t- the table at that moment. You know, and it, it's, that's, you know, these other arts and things are supposed to, you know, lead us along. 
So the first is to develop discernment about, well, yes, love, you know, see the beauty of this created thing, but allow yourself to pass through it and beyond it. Secondly, we have to cultivate constancy. Right? We, We have to... Once we know where beauty is, we have to knock uh, with, with consistency at that door. All right. So perhaps we're trying to recite, for example, the Jesus prayer. It's not coming. So if we listen to Elder Porfirios, maybe he says, okay, read a short passage from a life of a saint that you love or a gospel passage that, and then try. Nevertheless, it, it may be difficult it may just take patience. We're going to try this every day for 30 days. Now we know so much more about the brain and how habits form and what region of the brain habits reside. So some consistency, some constancy has to be cultivated in our devotion to the beautiful. And thirdly, we have to deal with negative outside influences that crowd around us and into our lives once the initial encounter with beauty has become less intense. And those things can be uh, sweet or they can be not so sweet, but they try to pull us away. So discernment, constancy, faithfulness, the beautiful... And that will help us to unfold a life of empathy in a way that's balanced. I asked a metropolitan hierarch once, uh, what is the best advice that you could possibly give me? I I had served him in South Korea for six months at the seminary there as a teacher, and I was leaving and I asked him that. And he said, simply, he said right away, he said, if you have a good thought, you must do it at once. In other words, if, the, if, the, if it comes to your mind, you know, I ought to read the Bible more, or uh, we ought to leave for church. I mean, it's, you know, it's time to go. Uh, I ought to call my grandmother, or he says those, those he didn't say this, but those thoughts are theophanies. They're the appearance of beauty in your life. God sent you that thought. He intends you to respond with a certain eros, in other words, alacrity in this case. You know, do it, do it. If you have a good thought, you must do it at once. It's, it's, you know, I mean, basically, uh, you, you know, that is pretty much, the, you know, the thought, recognizing the source of that thought. It is a gift. That thought is a gift. We tend to take them as givens, like these little good ideas, these beautiful ideas that pop into our head. But they're not. They're gifts. When we think they're givens, it's a sign of hubris. Think that we're some, what are we the source of that? Is the, is the universe just generating this? No, it's sometimes we've gotten kind of mixed up with guilt and we just think, well, it's a thought designed to make me feel guilty. <laughs> so we don't do it. But usually it's meant to. C.S. Lewis is good in this, and uh, 
I think it's in the, the silver chair that the uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia that the, the two children arrive in Narnia. They've been told, you know, if you, if you see someone you know, speak to him at once. You shall have good help. Well, they did see someone they knew, but they weren't sure. And he was much older. Time had passed. They were confused. They didn't speak to him. They had no help. But to listen to that good thought, to say, no, this is the appearance of the beautiful. Let me see how we're doing on time-wise here. So can I go another five or ten minutes, Father? Is that okay? Okay. So I think, uh, let's just say a few more things and then take questions. Yes? We have until one o'clock. Oh, one o'clock? Yeah. Oh. Does, should we let people take a bathroom break? I'm gonna, I'm gonna just go here. This is, you will know everything I know by the end of, and every story, every interesting thing that happened to me, it'll, it'll be yours. So, this, this, uh, this notion of beauty as God's appearing, right? I like it in that Dionysius term. It's, it seems like you can see it, you can think of it as a, a, an effulgence of light, or um, in, in, uh, when C.S. Lewis describes it in the Chronicles of Narnia, or Tolkien describes it in the Cimmerillion, that appearance of beauty which creates the world, they describe as music. Both authors, it's it's a it's a sound that's so beautiful that it, it calls non-being to attention. Um, but it's it is a it is a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful thought um, to think of the world arising in beauty and have destiny in Christ, and it, and it's a beautiful thought too to um, to think about. The fact that when we build something beautiful or when we make a beautiful icon, and nowadays, you know, everyone understands the icon. I mean, you see it, you know, you, you'll see Access Hollywood, home tour of some, you know, celebrity. This is often an icon somewhere and a good one. You know, they, so you are, by creating something like that, you are summoning people to fulfill the greatest commandment, but you're also giving them the power to do it. And, and that is something profound. It's nice to think about these. But normally when we think about Christian life, we think about the gospel, the evangelion, the good news. So in terms of um, having our eyes fixed um, on the gospel, let's kind of take a historical survey of what people have meant by the gospel and summarizing with orthodoxy and the beautiful. Well, we don't necessarily know. Um, somehow, when we think of Martin Luther, we think that his definition of the gospel was an attempt to simplify the medieval message and to make it uh, more radical. For Martin Luther and those who developed his views, when they talk about the gospel, they intend, among other things, liberation from the earthly authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Or they intend by the gospel the possibility of a new social order based on individual freedom of conscience. 
or by the gospel, they mean a guaranteed gift of salvation that will ease our mind so that we can struggle against sin without the fear of condemnation. I think those are a fair and balanced kind of depiction. What was the earlier account of the gospel that he was reacting against? Well, it also had many good elements. Emphasis on deliverance from judgment, especially provided that we obey the moral law. The gospel before Luther, the possibility of being in communion with the prince of the apostles, St. Peter. Because they thought in a very simple way. St. Peter, just Christ told them, you're the, you're the guy. And thus with his church. And also, the gospel included at that time a kind of account of a beautiful civilizational order that existed in the Middle Ages. And that they could see was not quite like the civilizational order in um, the South and the Far East. Because, for example, uh, the Christians weren't, at that time yet, they weren't slavers. Whereas they were constantly in danger of being enslaved by the Vikings or the, the Muslims. So the gospel included all these social benefits. So these are two different kind of accounts of the gospel. And then we come to a third in the American frontier. We have our successive waves of great awakening and spiritual awakening or the biblical-based conversion on the frontier. Before we're even independent as a country, already these waves of revival sweeping the country still happening today. So, if in the medieval period the gospel included this emphasis on social order, for Luther it was an emphasis, the gospel included the possibility of liberation from that order. But now in America, we sort of go back. The fear was that we might become quite wild out there on the frontier. People lived far from cities, they were making their own traditions, and the preachers had to get them kind of back into a Christian way of life. And these waves of revival spread virally, and they got the human person inscribed within a settler social order. This gospel also included eternal salvation as a promise, but it also included to access to biblical authority, individual access to biblical authority and its hierarchy of values, and an emphasis on thrift, self-responsibility, and liberty through hard work and sound judgment. That was sort of all in this gospel. Get saved and get married and get your farm in order. the 20th century comes along, about 19, was it 1904, we get a fourth take on the gospel with the birth of the Pentecostal church. Now it's again liberation from bourgeois restraint. There's the first hints of racial reconciliation in Pentecostalism. And there's a realization that the individual worth being more more the, the, the hope that you could realize your, instant, your individual worth in a more instantaneous way. You're not a longly patient, plodding farmer, but you're slain in the Spirit and you speak in tongues. You have this peak experience. This account of the Gospel has spread in an aspirational fashion globally. 
And somehow, it is somehow connected to the spread of, of rock music, which is a similar kind of a, a similar take on the good news, the good news of the Beatles and I don't know whatever else, but a kind of, uh, rather than conquering the passions, a light transfiguration into music. So Pentecostalism and, and rock, they give us a kind of democratic theosis. And we have that, that kind of a, a certain... And then we have finally a backlash against this pathway. Now there's a backlash in our day against that Pentecostal individualism. And we again try to inscribe the social order into the gospel message. The new gospel that's gaining strength and even a certain aggressiveness now is a fusion of uh, a certain Protestantism, a certain uh, and, and kind of the uh, the the Hebrew uh, prophets prophetic uh, social judgment that we get through Karl Marx. Again, for the social justice warrior, the gospel includes Christendom even if it is a post-Christian Christendom. And the gospel message in this manifestation may lose the emphasis on eternal salvation entirely. It also seems to be losing the emphasis on love for your enemies. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, again, a new take on what is the good news? What's the beautiful vision that will order society as we fall in love with it? This social justice gospel offers a hierarchy where the last are made first in this world. Well, if you think about all these different kind of accounts of the gospel, the first thing you can note, they're each of them trying to show the beautiful message, trying to put in words or in a, the, that expression of Christ, that giving of Christ to the world that first made the world come to be. The first is that there's always something to love in any of those visions. There's always something, there's something nice in each one. And I think people try to pick and choose and sort of hobble together a gospel. Secondly, we can see that there seems to be some oscillation uh, in, in our you know, modern accounts of the gospel between emphasis on liberty and emphasis on order and social control. Right? Now the the emphasis on against hate speech, for example, that's obviously not a pro-liberty message. And third, each of these accounts of the gospel uh, style themselves as a recovery, as a return to the pure theophany, the pure beauty of God's offering to the world. You see it on Twitter, you know, people who've never been to a church service in their life. They've never cracked the pages of the New Testament. They are confidently proclaiming the good news of how Jesus would vote, of how, what Jesus would be doing right now about this or that issue. And fourthly, we can see nevertheless that life does still begin with beauty. Which gospel you think is the true gospel is going to direct your efforts. All these gospels are inadvertently or advertently preaching beauty first. God goes first. What would Jesus do? He would not vote Republican. I mean, that's what they say on Twitter. 
Revelation is not just a star that guides us. It's a model to which we conform. Right? That's Dionysius got that right. You know, just a, a, a side note here, because I think we're doing okay on time. I, I, someone got me into watching Monk. So I'm talking about monastic plot today, but now I'm talking about the TV show Monk. <laughs> And, uh, and then I discovered it was free on Amazon Prime, which I don't know, that's not free, but I have no idea what I pay for that every year. Um, so it, so I, I did, and I watched you know, all the seasons, you know, one at a time. It took, you know, a couple of months. But when I was watching that show, I have to say, and this happened, and I noticed it happening, and I just sort of went with it, but... You know, my office became so much cleaner. My, my house got things that had piles that had been in for years on that couch and were put away. I, I fell in love with that man and his vision, and I became him. Not to that extent, but I, I started to do that. I mean, I couldn't help it. You know, it was just, I washed it and then I, I became it. And so I think how we define the gospel is going to be what we become. The thing is, we don't want to define the gospel. We want to receive the gospel through the church, through the tradition, through two millennia. What is going to happen if we have an an incomplete gospel? A friend of mine was a member of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. And the full gospel there definitely included that, A, you, you were meant to be rich. So if you weren't rich, this is a businessman's fellowship of full gospel, so, you know, take a hike, because it's clear that you, your faith is insufficient, because the gospel is wealth, earthly wealth, and, and also uh, speaking in tongues. So what we, what we believe is the gospel, that's what we'll try to, that's what we'll become, right? And of course, right, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, diff- different, you know, Christian variations on the gospel. But all you have to do really is just, in any society, certain things are thought to be supremely beautiful. In the 90s, you know, if you weren't a millionaire by the age of 22, you just felt like a, you know, kind of a loser. Because Silicon Valley, that, you know. So, this notion of gospel is broader than... Where do we find a balanced and full and vibrant ordering of the revelation? I would say that we find it in the church, but hopefully we see that the church itself is part of the good news. Hopefully we see that the, the good news includes so many things. Yes, Christ, the Son of God, became man. But right away, in orthodoxy we stress, he brought to us the kingdom of heaven. To us, that's a a crucial element of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the story of the Russian envoys last night, they said, we didn't know if we were in heaven or on earth. That's part of the gospel. That we, we don't have such an anxiety of how do we get to heaven. The Heaven has come, and it's coming to everyone. The, the, the question is, will it find us worthy? Has it found us worthy? Beauty is a gift. 
But if, if we react poorly to the gift, it becomes our judgment, our own judgment. So, so for us as Orthodox Christians, we've got to really stress the idea that the gospel uh, it, it means that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We participate now, a foretaste of the kingdom. And certainly, um, other elements, and these aren't exclusively orthodox, but I'm just trying to put as many here. Certainly, part of the gospel is the church herself. That Christ has left us his church, or he has established his church, that his church is his bride. That is the good news. Imagine if you could never again receive the body and blood of Christ because there was no church. That wouldn't be a very good news. That would be bad news. So the church itself is that the church exists in an unbroken continuity. That's the good news. And many other things. That Christ has conquered death. We don't even use the word death. We say cemetery. Cemetery. That means a place where you sleep. Christ has conquered the devil. He's conquered sin. He's conquered disease. He shares his victory with us over these four enemies from now as a foretaste and eternally in heaven. good news is that Christ has subjected nature to himself, has subjected the underworld and the spiritual world above to himself, and has even made us sharers in his sovereignty over these forces. Many times in evangelical Protestants you see a a good awareness of that promise of the gospel. But we see it much more clearly in the saints. Christ offers us forgiveness of sins and the power not to sin as much. Maybe not initially, but over the long haul. As I said, he makes us members of his own body. These are all these beautiful offerings. He calls us to image the cherubim encircling the throne of God, singing the thrice holy hymn. That's, that's a beautiful hymn at the beginning of the great entrance. We who ikonizundas, we who image, we are having become icons of the cherubim and like them offering this thrice holy hymn, those, those are gifts that we've just been given. Let us lay aside all earthly cares. <laughs> I mean, what a thing. And now, all we're asking is just lay aside, lay them aside. Part of the gospel is the new commandment to love one another as he has loved us. Part of the gospel is his new standard of leadership, of kingship, of priesthood, of prophecy. Part of the good news is that we know how we will be judged at the end of time so that we will have ample warning to prepare that we must love the least of these if we would be saved. We must follow this cruciform path, love for God, love for neighbor. A new social order that arises in response to this gospel is itself part of the gospel. 
Uh, to come to a Christian civilization is our hope, both to enter one and to arrive at one. Some of this new social order will be affected in changes in law. Right? Very quickly, slavery was outlawed in the Roman Empire after Constantine's conversion. Not so super quickly, it just fell away and then was outlawed. Some of this new social order comes through charitable acts. The Christians invented the hospital in the 4th century. That's all part of the good news. That's part of, that's part of the gift. That this has happened, that this happens, that we're called to participate in it, that we have the joy of participating and serving others. Part of the good news is to know that as we become more divine, close to Christ, we become more truly human. Because the God who saved the world is the same God who created the world and pronounced it good. So the gospel includes the fact that Christ has renewed the creation in important ways, the blessing of the waters. Creation has been renewed. Part of the good news is realizing that the more I love Christ, the more I I grow in fellowship with those around me. Part of the gospel is knowing that we have a rich blessing to express love for those who have gone before, to intercede those who who have died. Part of the gospel is to know the good news that we need the prayers of the saints and that they do pray for us. Right? For us, I don't think it's a partial gospel to say, you know, that if, if we don't say that you're going to become a millionaire. To me, that is not a partial gospel. But, but if you did tell me a gospel that didn't include the possibility of akathists and canons and prayers to the saints and getting, developing that fellowship, that would be an imperfect gospel. That would not be the full thing. The parts of the body need each other. All this is included in the good news, the blessing to be ourselves, to become more unique as we grow closer to Christ. Even apostolic succession is part of the gospel. Even the liturgy, the Eucharist, that we have this blessing. This is part of the gospel, to say that here, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Well, here it is. The table is set. I, I, I wanted to mention all that because rather than thinking about what is the false temptations in our life, let's try to expand as much as possible our understanding of what the gospel is. And someone told me a story at breakfast. Is it okay if I tell the story? It, it said that people whose job is to discern counterfeit currency, maybe this was you all have heard this story because maybe it was given here they don't spend their time studying all the false currencies but they spend their time studying the so much complexity in the true currency let, let that thing be your then they easily understand when something is missing right you don't reliably recognize, you know, let's say your husband or your wife or something because you've studied what all the other people look like. <laughs> oh, not enough said. <laughs> but, you know, 
Yes. So, we are trying to understand the gospel in its fullness, in, it, in all that has really been offered to us, and embrace that completely. And doing so, there's not time or energy for anything less. Did I tell the story last night about Aaron Copeland? Did I? The, a friend of mine was doing a master's in piano at Kent State, and he said to my, my master's recital is Aaron Copeland's Piano Sonata. Would you listen? He played the whole thing. I remember it was 35, 25 minutes long. I sat and listened. I have to tell you that for a week afterwards, I could not turn on the radio. N- nothing was like that. <laughs> Nothing was that beautiful. Now, of course, if I had just been on the radio and heard it, I would have heard a couple things change the channel. So, you know, I loved my friend and I, I did it and I carried my cross and, and through that was there was another revelation of beauty, but I couldn't... Um, so that's how we want our relationship with God and the gospel to be, to be so in love with... Yes, there's many other clever... Um, uh, you know, uh, depictions of this or that way. But can we really think of giving up the chalice? Our arrows for God is, is sufficient to preserve us. Now, after this appreciation of beauty, uh, and then we will wrap up just because it's just out of sheer mercy for you, uh, and we'll take questions, um, we realize. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent. That's the gospel. It's really present. And therefore we repent. Its arrival is a wake-up call. Or it's a summons to work, like the parable of the laborers, even if it's not until the 11th hour that we realize we're supposed to be in motion. The arrival of the gospel is supposed to be a judgment unto life to reveal that within you, you you really did always love God. Yeah? And down deep, at some level, there was still something good in you. The image of God was not totally lost. Bring it out. All that other stuff, let let it go. And then in this love, unfolding in a cruciform way of empathy towards others. This repentance is also part of the gospel. The possibility of repentance, the joy of repentance pattern of repentance. The Holy Spirit has inspired the saints over the ages. That, that too is part of the gospel. Right? To hear that St. Arsenius you know, lived, that St. Paisius lived, that is part of the gospel. That the Holy Spirit is still working. That's the good news. We should have the correct gospel, but an expansive, a complete gospel. Not limited to, say, the sinner's prayer and a once-off ticket, let's say, that says, live the rest of your life, but know that when you die. No, the, the gospel is so much fuller. It includes all these elements. Well, I think I, I want to uh, summarize a little bit, just because I said a lot, and then and then uh, stop and take questions. Um, let me just 
thank God that there's page numbers here, so that will make it easier. To just, it's nice to. So to, to go back over, so I thanked Father, I thanked Tomaida, and I'm just kidding. I'll go back to the whole. Um, so we're, we're living in this in this merchant age, and you know the merchants have their capital investments. Time is running out; they've got to make that money back, and we respect that. That's part of life, uh, I guess. But my point is, in the church, we see that time has a differentiation. There are seasons, and we're coming up upon a season where we want to cultivate a renewed arrows for Christ and empathy for our fellow man, so that we'll be ready on December 25th or 13 days later, if you're with the Julian calendar, to receive uh, Christ and his nativity. This emphasis on beauty may seem strange to us. Our culture respects truth. It respects goodness or effectiveness. It respects science. It respects policy. But it has no language, no common language to describe beauty. Beauty is mistrusted. It's like a temptation. It's, uh, maybe we think it's just will divide us or something. And, however, really what we're talking about is the first of the two greatest commandments. This total love for God that is the Eros love. Let the Hebrew witness govern the Greek and not the reverse. The salvation is from the Jews. And our, our Savior saying these, this is the path first. Total love for Him. Well, the Greek word for that is Eros. And this is what we, what we commit ourselves to because we were commanded to and because we have to do things in the sequence that was given. That helps us to explain this belief, this mystical belief among the church fathers, starting with St. Dionysius and on at least, that somehow creation itself obeys the two greatest commandments. As Dionysius said, from this beauty comes the existence of everything. For beauty is also the cause of harmony. So things fall in love with beauty and they learn empathy. And that's a mystery, but in any case, uh, better men than me have believed it. So that's sufficient for me. Um, And it's within beauty that we're meant to discover the cross. Because that primordial beauty is something like the victorious power of self-emptying love. Or as Revelation said, Christ is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And somehow that, His self-offering brings the world into being. And we learn the cross from within beauty. One of our big temptations along the way is just, well, what is the truly beautiful? How do we stay a constant to it? How do we stay faithful to it? And instead of answering those questions directly, I just brought to your attention this joy of the gospel at hopefully a kind of macro scale. To think about um, the gospel in as wide a picture as we can. Everything from... um, Here's page two. Everything from uh, the simple things, like deliverance at the judgment, to the icons, to the social things, that we have been granted the possibility of living in peace one with another and of living in a more just world. 
Right? All these things are part of the gospel. But to create that, to make that big, not to narrow it, as you do your social justice work, not to neglect your prayers and your petitions to the saints. As you think about the way the gospel makes you free, uh, and maybe free to, I don't know, break a few social rules, and also to see uh, that it inscribes you in a communion of the saints, where the rule is, is love. And hopefully just keeping that, uh, that broad as possible picture of what the gospel is in our mind, but expanding our definition of the beautiful, that will guide us. If you watch Monk, your house will get cleaner. You don't have to think about it. It just, it just will. You know. I, I, I was watching a, another time on a big binge of this Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer. And I went to someone's house. They had a, a fanatic German shepherd. He was a fanatic. He wasn't just wild. And he was uh, wearing a bandana of something. No, just kidding. But they, and they could not control that dog. I controlled that dog so simply. I had been, I had been admiring Cesar Milan. I, I can't tell you a single one of his rules that it was so easy. Because when we fall in love with something, we become that thing. If we fall in love with Christ, we shall become like Him. It's not, uh, it's not the end of the, of the struggle, but it certainly is the beginning, I think. If we, do not have a full, if we do not have the fullness of God's revelation to the world, we shall only with great difficulty and confusion move into the path of right action. Right? We're just going to be fighting other people with their own definitions of the gospel. And we will not come together as a church or as a society unless we have that fullness. Okay. I apologize if this was like way longer than you expected. I thought I was supposed to stop at 12, but then that enticing of 1 p.m. came out. So we have 26 minutes for questions. Should we do any kind of a break? Or people certainly are free to go to the bathroom. That's true. There's no... You don't need to, to, you know. Does anyone have any questions? I'll start off with one. You mentioned something about um, St. Dionysius in relation to Revelation. Could you expand that a little bit more? St. Dionysius in relation to? Revelation. Of the book of Revelation? No, about uh, that Revelation is uh, something that is given versus... So, uh, um, I'm not sure if I, if I uh, um, got it right, but, um, I mean, if I understand what you're referring to, but maybe it's, um, this idea that, that God, God was so good and so full of love, of course he was true, the true God was so good that he couldn't be contained within himself and he spilled over outside as revelation or as beauty. And to understand that revelation, we have to kind of embrace the beautiful and then walk along the path. Um, is that, that's not what you were asking. That helps. Okay, and, and certainly, whereas I think in our society, first we want to solve the intellectual problem. Give me the right philosophy, and then show me how, it, how it's applied. And in fact, we, we tend to organize education this way. In Germany, but theory and praxis, you know, theory and practice. What's the theory of the thing and the practice? But we leave out the beauty. 
or we leave out the why a person might fall in love with this to begin with. Um, one thing I've noticed too about this fact that we, we've ruled out the beautiful and we do it backwards is we, we, do, we go theory to practice, you know, the, the true to the good, we never get to the beautiful at all, except to criticize it. So a message our young people here about truth is that all truth is relative. Therefore, to be good, you should just accept everyone equally making no discernments or judgments or hinting that there's some other truth that we disagree on. And then, when it comes to the issue of the beauty of family, the beauty of chastity, the beauty of purity, they say, oh, that's not beautiful at all. That's ugly. Why is that ugly? Because you're hurting my feelings by not joining in with my sin. And you're judging me. You're, not, you're being proud. You're not being humble. So that's the way the world is going. And, and that can become, for some of our kids, the moment they get to college, that's the message that they're getting. That chastity is a sign that you're mean, you're not good, and you're also proud. You think you're better than some, everyone else. And so they say, well, I know I'm not supposed to be mean. I heard that in church. I'm not supposed to be proud. Okay. And they fall into a life of sin, whether it's drugs or something else. And they, and and what's the statistics? You know, eighty percent or seventy percent of kids in college lose their faith. And um, and it's precisely because faith and life in Christ, whether we're Protestant, Roman Catholic, what doesn't matter. It only beauty first way. But when you go to university, you come into this truth first cruelty that uh, is, uh, has uh, this massive social support and it, it, it attacks uh, the person. Now, if they submit to the attack, then they'll succeed in this world, perhaps. They'll endanger their salvation. But, more, but also, a, a world that ruled out beauty and chastity is, is itself not a beautiful world. And, um, and more and more people are feeling this, that, gee, you know, our buildings aren't beautiful, our, you know, our art is kind of just kind of confusing. You know, what, what is, what's the meaning of life? We're supposed to say it's beautiful. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. But you need to, you know, you have to, you know, check your watch, what time is it, and what's the current opinion of the powerful about what is and isn't beautiful, because, you know... You, so we're in this kind of a confusion now where we, we've lost the beautiful. And this man, uh, James Howard Kunstler, who wrote The Geography of Nowhere, and maybe you've heard he, slide presentations, you know, he says, well, you know, we've ruined our built environment, you know, our, our urban planning. Everything looks awful. He said, he said, he, he, he said, who would die for this country? Who would die for a world where we where we were always ruining anything that's beautiful and and trying to? He says, I don't see that 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 community has a future. So so we have to we have to um, turn this around somehow, and I think as a society we will because first of all, almost nothing I've said isn't sort of already in Saint Dionysius. Anyone can discover that, and a lot of people are. I had to discover it for myself, but I did have certain helps, especially um, my professor at, um, at the PhD level. <clears throat> Question? 
uh, I want to ask you a question about something you mentioned last night. But first, I just wanted to first I just want to share a quote that I think really speaks to what you were just saying. Um, it's from uh, Father Solons. He's a retired sociology professor at Catholic University, and now he's a researcher for the Ruth Institute. And he, he made a comment that I think really characterizes this, and he said, if you hate the truth, the truth looks like hate. And that really speaks to our society today. But, I, but, but the question I want to ask is, last night you gave the example of the, the seminarian who posed that question to you about the book on St. Maximus. And I just wondered, what response, or were you ever able to give him a response? Um, yes, yeah, so, so um, we did talk a little bit about that. Um, the, the, this issue of sensuality does not mean that the, of sensuality as being the root of sin in the East. It doesn't mean the body isn't good or the world isn't good. It just means that an attachment to those things that's kind of infantile, uh, that we only see the world as what serves us and serves my self-love. That's, that's the beginning of real trouble in our spiritual life. Um, we have to fall in love with something outside ourselves, And to put it in kind of battle terms, we have to defeat self-love. Not the positive self-love that we take good care of ourselves and, and are grateful for what God has made us. But the self-love that is like a, a, a complete self-enclosure that is only thinking about the self. Sometimes, if we're not careful, um, when we're trying to be good, we're just more and more lo locked in ourself. We don't have that prior eros that takes us outside. So the, the fathers just thought, as a practical matter, if you defeated self-love, all the other sins would kind of fall. Uh, so that's the kind of things I talked about with him. And... Um, of course, in, in, in Greek history, classical Greek history, they used... Um, I, asked, I actually asked a friend who plays a lot of video games, um, how do you defeat a swarm attack in a video game? You know, if you're one ship and you're you know, thousands of little ships. Actually, I think I asked him because I was concerned about um, the United States Navy and the Persian Gulf, but whatever. Because um, the Iranians were going to send a thousand micro-boats or whatever. And he said, ah, well, in video games, there's two, only two solutions to a swarm attack. Uh, one is that you have to kind of pick a, a sort of protected cove and you force the swarm to come through one at a time. That's what the Greeks did at Thermopylae. There were 300 Greeks, Spartans, and there were a few other guys. Nobody remembers, but they were there too. And then an infinity of, of Persian Persians. So they, they forced them into a narrow pass. They could fight them one at a time. And, and that's what the Greeks then did again at um, the Battle of Salamis in the naval. They put their fleet in it, and they took the, the Persian fleet one at a time. That's what the Jesus prayer is supposed to do. It's supposed to take all this swarm attacks of thoughts and negative emotions and force each one to face the Jesus prayer and die there. It's a focusing of the attention. 
And then he said the other way you defeat a swarm attack is you know you've got to find you know the mother spider that's you know giving birth to these millions, and you've got to wipe. And that's ultimately what the Greeks did too. They you know they marched all the way to Persia. They just they got it over with. So we can't do this forever. And, and that's what the church fathers think as well about self-love. It's, the, it's the, the mother spider in a way. And if you can just cut off self-love, then the, the rest of it is easy. There's nothing else coming. It's uh, that which is generating your problems is over. And the way to, to cut off self-love is not by like, trying to torture yourself or something. It's never going to work. It's by falling in love with something outside yourself, someone outside yourself. And if we think about it, I know, at least I think, many times we're critical of people, you know, who aren't in the church or something. But I don't see there's any percentage in criticizing or judging anyone. Um, and if you think about, you know, a Steve Jobs or the automotive engineer at BMW, you know, they have an eros that's outside themselves. There's a kind of built-in asceticism there. There's a self-denial. And with that comes a certain spiritual freedom as well. It's undeniable. And, um, and wouldn't it be sad if it would turn out that, you know, they loved their cars more than I loved Christ. And they loved their cars with a more pure love than I loved Christ. Because I understood the Christian message intellectually. I said, okay, check that box. And then I rolled over and went back to sleep for the rest of my life. I never really fell in love. And, um, and, and, and anyway, we're not, we're not perfect. But anyway, let's take another question. Sorry. Let's, let's, any other? Yes. I have a, I have a question. Uh, as Christians, how are we to respond to this? I mean, there are a lot of negative things that are happening. They're, they're tearing down crosses. They're tearing down part of what we perceived as beautiful at different ages, different statues that were part of our history that we're trying to deny now. Uh, we're equating them with racial situations and they're destroying part of us and of course we could go to the Jesus prayer and say that and turn our heads in and I'm guilty of that one but uh, is there any response that we can have to that that would be a positive response um, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, now that the world is... Um, well, of course, we've seen this before. We've seen um, in, was it 1789, the French Revolution, that in this a kind of uh, you know, orgy of violence, they destroyed as many sacred things as they could. And uh, the, you know, the, the relics of Saint Genevieve of Paris, who was the patron, you know, they, they started to burn them and destroy them and dump them. I mean, they, they 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 were consumed by this spirit of hatred for the beautiful in the name of supposedly loving your neighbor. And um, 130 years later, that same modernist revolutionary spirit came to Russia. And for the next 75 years, our, our smart people studied the Russian Revolution as if it were somehow an example of czarism gone. And Solzhenitsyn kept saying, no, look to the French Revolution. It's the modernist spirit. It wants to destroy these things. Well, forgive me for saying it, but if you go back a little bit more in history, uh, 
historians tell us the greatest destruction of art in world history came with the Protestant Reformation. That, that was, and, and we don't have an infinity of art. I mean, we, we can't afford to throw those things away. I mean, there's only so many Matisse's, there's only so many Van Gogh's. If someone destroys, you know. So these great iconoclastic forces are somehow roiling beneath the surface now in the modern age. And, um, you know, I don't really know exactly where that comes from. But I know that there's also always a counter-reaction of people realizing something is really wrong. Now, when we get to Karl Marx, so this is after the French Revolution now, when he was a kid, or when he was in his late teens or 20s, he was writing poetry, this is a true fact, in praise of uh, Satan. Because he thought that Satan was the first revolutionary. And he overthrew the, tried to overthrow the kingdom. And that's what we ought to do. Overthrow these Christian kings and queens of Europe. Out of supposed love for people. So, I think it's good to understand these kind of roots. Um, and to see that... Let me put one other intellectual thing. and then, in, But really, you're asking me a practical question. So, I'll come back to that. Um, one other intellectual thing is that the word hierarchy is very confusing for people. This uh, church father that we've been quoting most last night and today, St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, he invented the word hierarchy, the Greek word hierarchia. He invented it, coined it. What he meant is not what we mean by hierarchy. What we mean by hierarchy is like, I'm at the top and you're a peon, somewhere, you know, many layers down. Or I'm very rich and you're... But what he meant was... um, Maybe we'll try to find one of these and put it in the presentation. He meant fractals. He meant a similar shape, but at many scales. This is how organic order functions. So, so people don't understand that. So they hate any sign of hierarchy. Then they hate any sign of difference, men, women, because then that could imply a hierarchy. So, as an intellectual thing, we can try to address this as professors, but no one's going to listen anyway because people are kind of caught up in the bloodlust. They want to destroy many times. A practical answer uh, is prayerfully to, to speak up in defense and try to prayerfully respond to people and, and show them that, I don't know, that, that what they're doing isn't beautiful. And therefore, it's, it's really not going to, to last, um, this you know, destruction of the family and things like that. Yes, Father? Just waiting for a question. Um, I'm not sure what my question is, but I kept trying to map this, this uh, um, what you're talking about with beauty onto something that maybe the Western intellectual tradition has been struggling with itself, like where the skepticism or the disintegration of beauty starts um, in kind of like the big sequence of that in the history of ideas, like where did we go, start going wrong or questioning um, beauty? Does it have to do with sensuality? Does it have to do with making us irrational? Where do you see that narrative, I guess, uh, you know, uh, in the broad sort of history? Yes, everyone wants to ask that question. Like, what, what, what happened? You know, how did we... 
how do we get to the point that how did we where did it go we start to go wrong where a man can say he's a woman and now compete in a sporting event a women's sporting event and win and no one says well Okay, just rename the events. This is the XY event, and that's the XX event. I mean, how did we come to this point where, um, whatever? Uh, Well, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about this called The Discarded Image, and since he's a literature professor, I would just refer you there, since you're a literature professor. Um, And he talked about how we lost this sense of the world as icon. Once we thought the world wasn't really an icon of the, of the heavenly life, then it seemed like arbitrary. It seemed just power. And of course, this, this opposition against power comes naturally to us as American revolutionaries. But it's not really an American thing, per se. It really is. Um, Isn't it really Adam and Eve? Yes, let's, let's, yes, because they wanted the, the, the creation detachable from the creator. And that is the first iconoclasm, to take the creation detachable from the creator. But, but you know, there are other professors, I'm sure, who could do better than me at kind of the, the sources of that. But I would just, that discarded image is a nice book for any of us to read. It's, you know, it's easily, and, and it's also good. Any other comments or uh, questions? How much did they tell you to say that? Okay, so yes, I've written a book uh, called The Ethics of Beauty, and it's going to be coming out uh, uh, early next month. And if you would like a copy, go to the St. Nicholas Press uh, website. And I don't, can they pre-order a copy yet on there? Soon they will be. You'll be able to. And it's called the Ethics of Beauty, and it's it's kind of laying out this what a beauty first way looks like. Um, the the thing that I haven't mentioned, I think, at all yet, and I don't really want to, is that I got interested in in the beauty first way, especially because I was uh, studying um, a little bit theologically and ethically what traumatic experiences like and a, a traumatic experience is an encounter with ugliness that seems to show that the world is not good and it, it carries with it a revelatory force it feels like the veil is being pulled you see that what the world is really like and um, it's the opposite in other words of beauty first and that's so I say a few things about that in the book as well um, and at the end of the book I talk about um, uh, science in the 20th, 20th century and the discovery of organic complexity, which is a beauty first approach to science. So, thank you very much for your questions. And uh, at this time, we'll offer everyone a break and a meal. Yes. Uh, so, if we could all assemble into the next room and we'll have our meal.